kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joining you as always with Carlo. Hello. And today we have with us my good friend and attorney, John Q. Kelly. Uh, he is an attorney that is specializing in wrongful death cases. He's probably the best litigator that I've ever met in the world. And he's worked on some of the high-profile cases. And I actually, I was involved in a few of them. But, and when I, I say this, I don't say it lightly. When something happens... I go to John Kelly. Now, I know every freaking lawyer in the world, but John Kelly is the consummate litigation-tation wrongful death attorney. When the, when the light fell down at the Macy's Day Parade, was that yours? I didn't knock it down, but I represented the victim. She got hit in the head. How much did she get? Enough. Enough. Notice he don't tell you because he gets one-third of it. A lot of cash. A lot of cash. Gets a lot of cash for his clients, and that's one of the reasons why he's one of the best. He's like he used to wear one of these uh, green things over his eyes, ching, 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 because he gets a lot of money for his clients because he beats the living shit out of the defense teams. He presents a great case. Where'd you grow up, John? Chicago, North Shore. I figured, figured that you really weren't a New York guy. You were like a Chicagoan, right? Yeah. Is this censored, by the way, or are you no. going to be? No, no, okay. no censored. No. Okay. All right. Okay. Then you ended up, what years were you in my little friend? Were you working for the little guy, Brown in Queens? Was he there when you were? Santucci. Santucci. Johnny Santucci, just another a, one of my friends. Early, early 80s. That's when uh, Jackson Heights was out with the Colombians. Oh, excuse the me. I Dominicans would, and the Haitians. Excuse me. Where do you think I worked as a young cop in the beginning, in the 70s? Was the 110, Elmer's, Corona, Jackson Heights. Oh, man. I, I was locking their asses up. Okay. So then you started at the Queens DA's office. When did you actually, how long did you stay in the Queens DA's office, John? Yeah, I didn't even make my uh, three-year requirement. I left after two years. And went private right after private, that. Yeah. And then you uh, started the private practice. Where did you originally start it? I was uh, I kept my office in Manhattan, and I started doing criminal defense stuff and Unfortunately, that's when I ran across you about 36, seven years ago when you were still on the force. You and uh, Vinny Pepitone was your partner. Ah, Joe Pepitone, a famous Yankee baseball player. Vinny Boy worked for me. And uh, that's with when you, we first met. He, with you or yeah, for you? With me. With me. Okay, but I paid okay. the bills for it for me. If he was paying my bills, I'd work for him. <laughs> Whoever signs a freaking check, you work for them. Uh, and then we went, there was a case with uh, Joe Pepitone in Brooklyn. And uh, then I met this squeebo. I think you walked into the seven five to talk to me, didn't you, squad? What were you there with, uh, Joe? Uh, yeah, I was there with Joe and Vinny, and I think that's when we met was in the seven five. Yeah, and I was a detective at that time. In you, the and, you and Vinny had a little size between you, as I recall. Vinny was a big boy. Vinny was six six foot three, two hundred eighty pounds. There was no fat on him. He was one tough mother, Vinny Pepitone, Joe Pepitone's brother. And then we helped him out of a little jam, a little bullshit jam. And, uh, and that's life, how we met. A little life sentence he was facing. A uh, little life sentence he was facing, but John uh, took it and it's like a soup. He started it around and before you finished, it was over. And John got him off on something very light and was good. And 
Why did you change from criminal defense to this? Let, let the people understand what this wrongful death stuff's all about and uh, is the standard of proofs. So what's the difference between you being a criminal defense attorney or a wrongful death attorney? Uh, one, I didn't like doing criminal defense work too much. Because they were all freaking guilty. They were all criminals. Yeah. Okay, good. So, two, it didn't pay as well. And in 86, the uh, currency transaction reporting bill went into effect where yeah. none of these guys could pay you either. So, so they couldn't you give like you the cash little... that you were taking under the table. They couldn't give you the cash anymore. No, they were putting it right on the table. Oh, okay. They put it right on the table. You just were you claiming it. it to the IRS? Statue of limitations long over. Were you claiming it to the you make me nervous, but I'm like, you know, shaking, <laughs> I'm blushing. This is statue limitations over. But I'm uh, with one tough cop here that of the worst. See bow, how he flips on my interrogation. I know, I know. But uh, yeah, but obviously it's uh, pays a lot better to do the civil stuff, and uh, it's a lot more rewarding because you're helping people to really. Well, you're helping yourself and, the one third too. Yeah, but I'm helping them to two thirds. Well, and I do all the work, and, you know. Well, when you get these judgments, you get these $30 million judgments. Hey, uh, $10 million to the uh, Kelly household ain't so bad. Yeah, you know, well, you see, I like that you, stuff. You got your hand out right now. What's that for? <laughs> <laughs> so, John, got, well, real fast, we just had a case together with John. John came to me when he hit a brick wall like he sometimes does, and he goes, Bo, we got three people dead in Kentucky, and it's two and a half years old. Let's keep the details out. And the point is that John came to me with the sister and the son, and this creep killed three people. And we're not going to go into details because it's pretty active. And uh, and you say what happened, John. Uh, we, I, uh, I'll not the actual evidence, say. not the actual evidence. Tell us, say the story. I was approached by a family whose uh, parents and someone else had been basically executed. Three dead. In the Midwest, and it was three years post. and Nothing no, was happening. Nothing was happening, no arrest, no you know, persons of interest, nothing. And they wanted to know if I could figure out something, which, of course, I could have, but I thought maybe it would be a good idea to talk to you. Experts. Experts such as Bo Deedle and co., so I met up with you. I brought the family up to you. You reviewed all the, the police reports and crime scene stuff you could get your hands on. And um, sure enough, you found a, a link between a, a very formidable, logical suspect and the physical and forensic evidence. You passed it along to law enforcement and... And an indictment came was, down. An indictment came down. A guy was arrested and he's you know, sitting in jail right now thanks to your good in, work. We can't get into too much specifics because it's an active case, but it was a piece of evidence, the tie-in piece of evidence that constituted the fact that this guy was indicted then on the three murders. And it was just funny. He was working, and I don't want to give that up either, but he was working for a major airline as a pilot. <laughs> he was boarding a plane when he was locked up. <laughs> and it's unbelievable, the background. I don't know who did the background. Maybe Stevie Wonder or something. But this is a guy who was an actual pilot for a major airline who was working as a pilot after he was incarcerated. And I, I don't know how they did the background, but it's just crazy. But this was one of the cases that was pretty rewarding because this poor family was hitting a brick wall for three years. And to, to be honest, with you, it could have maybe still be going on, and I thank God that we were able to link this one most important piece of evidence to have this guy indicted. It was a very small piece of evidence, too, that you ran with. Yeah, I point out it was a one single small piece of forensic evidence that 
you had sent to a lab and matched up to another small, small piece of evidence. Don't give up the evidence, evidence. John. You like Sammy to bully. I'm talking about evidence. That's it. That's the word, evidence. So, John, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the financial aspect of these cases, but it's also you're getting justice for these families sometimes when the law enforcement has failed or the justice system has failed. Do you see yourself as kind of uh, a resource for families that, you know, sometimes where their loved ones or uh, have been victims and they, you know, kind of hit a brick wall and can't get anything going? Yeah, I think that's right, Carlo, but I would, you know, point out, too, I'm not a crusader. You know, it's a it's an economic decision. Thank that you. In other words, be in other words, they call it nice try. Stop with this crusader bullshit. John's the best lawyer in the world. He does the best cases, and he gets the most cash for his clients. Bottom line, and he gets one third. He ain't no crusader. He ain't going to be doing these cases for some people. He ain't got no cash to support him. What percent do I get again, Bo? Thirty. You keep mentioning that. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a big you. deal. You know some of the cases John's worked yeah, So, on. for example, you know, if we could talk about the OJ case, because he was acquitted in a criminal trial, but in the civil trial, there was enough to convict him as responsible for the murders. He was held liable for held the liable liable murders. So we can talk about the, the difference in the standard of proof. You know, in a criminal trial, it's beyond a reasonable doubt, and in a civil trial, it's... By a preponderance of the evidence. Yeah. You know, it's a much lower uh, standard of proof. You don't need a unanimous jury. We only needed 9 out of 12 on that case, even though we had a unanimous jury. And uh, I hate to say it, that was an easy case. There was so much (laughs) evidence. The man was so guilty. And you could could present the same evidence again, right, John? Well, and more, too. We had more. We had deposed Simpson, so we had his ridiculous testimony in terms of the accounting that night and the shoes. A picture of him in the Bruno Molly's shoes. And then, which, and then his stupid glove, which was a real pre-ejaculation on the DA's part. You don't let him try that damn glove on. It was all theatric. It was like theater. And that was all it was. And they would have acquitted him on the criminal if there was a video seeing him stab these two people. They were not going to convict them. And we all, we kind of realized that. I was with Fox News at that time. I was a commentator. I used to fly out to L.A. back and forth. And uh, I mean, with the with the original blood dri- drippings on the fence, it was his freaking blood. It wasn't a Martian's blood. I mean, that was to me the most damning evidence. Was his blood was there? Then they start bringing in these Fugazi experts. Oh, it was contaminated because what they used to put in the blood to preserve it contaminated. I mean, the most ridiculous things I ever heard. And me as a detective, just I was outraged that this man got away with a double murder. I actually used to do the Fox commentary with you during oh, the preliminary right. hearing. That's right, John. I Kelly, John Kelly. John Kelly and yeah, both I, I said you left. Yeah. But I, I tell you. But by the way, with the blood evidence, not only did they have his footprints, his size 12, leading from the scene, they had a mixture of Ron and Nicole's blood in his size 12 footprints in the floor mat of his car. With their blood on the right side where he had his right hand I have to laugh still. because people can't believe the evidence, the overwhelming evidence on the criminal case. And this guy here beats a double murder. Everybody's hum- come by A and he killed these poor people and got away until John came. <laughs> John was the Calvary on the civil case. You know what he actually did, John? He actually got the Heisman Trophy, John did. O.J. hates John Kelly. Okay. Where so is we the talk Heisman about, Trophy we talk now? about the Heisman a little bit? Yes, please. 
So 30 days after our, our verdict of $33.5 million, Simpson can't post a bond for the appeal, which means we can seize all his personal property. On the 31st day, I've arranged for the L.A. County sheriffs to go into his home. We first take the kids out so they don't have to see any of this. They go knock on the door. They empty Simpson's house over the course of a day. We take all his, you know, his rugs, his furniture, <laughs> his artwork, his trophies, everything that wasn't nailed down because we're entitled to. Uh, I'm back in New York, by the way. Uh, the sheriff calls me in New York, says, John, we've got all Simpson's personal property. We're leaving now. Anything else that you want us to do? I said, do you have the Heisman? You know, sheriff, did you find the Heisman? He's like, no. It's not here, and we don't know where it is. I said, don't leave yet. I'm going to make one phone call. I call up Simpson's lawyer out in L.A., and I say, Bob, that's the guy's name. I won't use it all. I said, Bob, uh, we've taken all Simpson's stuff. We can't find the Heisman Trophy. Why don't you give it to me? Because if if uh, Goldman's family gets the trophy, they're going to make a spectacle out of it. If I get it, I can give it to the kids who I represent, Cindy and Justin. He said, you know, John, that's a, that's a good idea. That's, you know, good thought. Let me call OJ, see if we can arrange for you to get the high spin and work it that way. So I say, fine. I hang up the phone. He calls me back five minutes later, and uh, he says, John, OJ has a message for you. I said, what's that, Bob? He said, OJ said to tell you, first of all, F you, and that you have a better chance of winning the Heisman than him giving it to you. <laughs> but you eventually got it. We did. We did through his agent who had it locked up somewhere in Detroit or something. Well, where did it end up, the Heisman? Some bonehead paid a quarter million bucks for it. It's probably worth, what, 2500 bucks today or something like that. I wouldn't so, buy it for $2. I know. Well, but, uh, you know, like some of the other cases, it's just funny that John and I worked on a lot of crap. Together. Then yeah. he pulls me into a really another famous case. This beautiful young girl who was, she was murdered, there's no doubt in my mind. And there's the famous Holloway case in Aruba when that scumbag, Evander Urin Vandersloot. Urin Vandersloot is his name? Urin Vandersloot. Urin or Urin? I think you called him Urin, but he pronounced Urin. So then John gets us involved in the case. And it's a horrific case because this beautiful young girl disappears on a, a vacation to Aruba and she was hauntingly beautiful and the mom and all that. And then we went in there and we kept hitting brick walls in the investigation, no cooperation. There was no initial investigation done by the Aruba police, i.e. getting the guy's call, looking for evidence, nothing, 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 nothing. And then, uh, and then as it eventually went on, we weren't going anywhere at the criminal side of it. And John comes out and goes after him civilly again. Talk about it. We did. It actually brought the action in New York, and we coordinated between us a very complex plan of finding out from the flight manual, you could still get those, the manifest back then, that Euron was flying in from Denmark to the U.S., so we knew that ahead of time, and that his parents were flying in from Aruba to Newark and coming to New York at the same time, too, so in a very carefully coordinated things with sort of dinosaur cell phones and beepers and things like that. I think the way it worked was first we had to file the summons and complaint in New York to get the index number, which he did. And then once you had the index number, you had been sitting, you had been sitting on Euron's parents at the hotel in New York. 
and you had to serve them while Euron was still on the plane. Yeah, so and then we had it, then around. I put a detective on the plane flying to New York secretly. He was going to do a 2020 expose with uh, Chris Como. And uh, secretly, we put one of our detectives flying from Europe, and the instructions were as soon as the plane lands, serve him in New York. Now, I knew he was going to say he didn't get served the normal. So then I yeah, said, Yeah, well, you t- there's a picture of him being served. So you knew he was served. Well, then I just didn't think it was good enough. You didn't know it turned out, the picture. Well, point is, <laughs> we then decided we were going to serve him publicly and videotape it where the world could see. And I said, you know, John, I don't like this murderous son of a bitch. He killed this little girl. We didn't know about the other murders, too, after that. At that time, we didn't know about the other murders. So uh, I then had a guy with a video camera, one of my detectives. And I said, I'll serve him. Now he's about 6'6", big guy. And he came out. They held him for about two and a half hours in customs and immigration before they let him up. So he starts walking up, and the next thing happens, I see him coming, and I got the thing. He looks at me, he puts his coat over his head, and I'm starting to walk to him to serve him. And then this little Jimmy the Cricket producer pushes me, like tries to push me out of the way, and I knock him on his ass. I push him back, and he goes, boom, 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 he flies over. And then I walk over to Uren Vandersloot. I says, here, you're being served on the murder of of, uh, of Holloway and Natalie Holloway's murder. And I stuffed the thing into his shirt. I said, why don't you put your hands around my throat like you killed that little girl? Come on, you punk. I tried to bait him, and I couldn't really bait him, but he was served, and uh, and then we had the civil case against him. So what happened with that, John? Well, before the civil case, I got all the calls from the, the network whose producer you had roughed up a little bit. No, I didn't rough him up. He pushed me. I pushed him back. He Wait, fell down. He, he might have, like, bumped into you when you stopped No, he him. pushed me. <laughs> and I pushed him back. I just defended myself, John. Well, you rewrite history in your own mind sometimes, yeah. but we'll let you do that. Now, what are we talking about? So then what eventually happened with the uh, civil case against Natalie Holloway? Well, that one was uh, dismissed on jurisdictional grounds, and then we came up with the extortion thing with the FBI. Mm-hmm. That should have led to his arrest and being brought to Alabama. And the Aruban authorities let him walk out of the airport, fly to it was Columbia, and he ended up murdering another girl. Two, right I think, after two that. in Columbia. And it was, his dad was a judge in Aruba. Hmm. So he had all the, the police there in his pocket. So hence all the evidence and any kind of real proper investigation that could have maybe found her fast was not done. And it was all a cover-up down. It was, it was horrific to work a case down in Aruba because he had so much control to father down there. Well, the first time I went there was with one of your guys. I forget who came yeah, down there. I went down me. myself on that one, too. You were down there, too. And the first time I went in to talk to the Aruban cops, um, you and or you guys were left sitting out in the car, and they sent cops out to sit in the car <clears throat> with you yeah. to make sure we weren't transmitting recordings or something like that. They were yeah. very paranoid down there. So. You know, another, I, I know people like to listen to interesting cases. Another interesting one is this young girl, Amanda Knox, who allegedly didn't have any involvement with the murder of the... Uh, she didn't. There's okay. No well, excuse me, John. I'm, I'm prefacing it. I mean, would you bet your life on it, John? Yeah. She had nothing, no involvement with the murder. None whatsoever. Who killed that person? The guy who confessed to it, the guy whose 
S was found in the toilet and matched up to him, the guy whose bloody clothes and bloody sneakers had the victim's blood on it. All of that. He's the guy that did it, and he served about seven years in prison for it. Now, did you handle the criminal side of that? Or? No, I was representing uh, her boyfriend, Rafa Slechido. Her boyfriend. Now, he was acquitted also? Yeah. And she did. was acquitted on that yeah. one. Very, very— But it was big. after a long time. They were. Uh, how, what was it like navigating the Kafka-esque well, he was in, Italian uh, legal system? He was in prison for, I think, was three years because he wouldn't turn on her. Really? He'd only met her less than a week earlier— you know, they were at his apartment the night of the murders, and all the Italian authorities asked of him was to incriminate her in some way, and he'd be let out of there. And he wouldn't do it because it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. Yeah, him, and so. that, that was to navigate the Italian law over there, that was kind of difficult, right? Well, it was, it was interesting. The last time I was there, I sat in a courtroom for five days and didn't understand a single word that was said. <laughs> But other than that, I was yeah, <laughs> very had, effective. You had a great outcome in that I one did, again. Yeah. And then another famous one, that scumbag, Drew Pearson, the one that everyone mm. hates, Drew Peterson uh, in California. This was the one where he killed. Oh, no, he's, he's in Illinois. Yeah. South what, of Chicago, Scott Peterson and Drew Peterson. Drew Peterson, the ex-cop in Drew Peterson Illinois. is the one that killed two of his wives. Yeah, three. at least. Scumbag. Yeah, I think three. Sergeant in, what, what that, where was he? Like Cicero or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you were involved yeah. with the Drew Peterson one, right? Peterson. No, I, I covered, no, I was involved in the Drew Peterson. In fact, they had decided they weren't going to press any charges against them. We got involved. Michael Bodden, our friend, did oh, another yes. autopsy on uh, the second wife, found uh, all kinds of signs of a homicide. And then the prosecutors down there decided, after that, to indict Peterson. And Went to trial and was convicted, serving life and, sentence. And he's doing two life sentences, right, for two, two murders. Life yeah, yeah, two murders. And now he but, didn't have a lot of money, though. That's yeah. But now that, that that case, this is the this is the part I got to ask you. So the Drew Pierce Peterson case, there wasn't a lot of money there. Where do you? Who did you sue for? And what did you? I mean, what kind of recovery would you get? Some well, well, fortunately, we weren't. That involved after the indictment. Mm-hmm. So once we had... You brought Biden in. We brought Biden in, filed the civil case. That's all we did. And who, that who we, were you suing on the civil case? Drew the police Peterson. department? No, just Drew Peterson. And, but he had nothing. Death. Right. So what the hell were you going to get out of him? Well, he had something at the time. He had his pension and things. But that was, I was being a crusader that time. That would be an example of something... Well, why didn't, you get, the, why didn't you get smart, Squigo? Why didn't you sue the police department, too, for an efficient investigation? Come on, John. Come on. You, it was a deep pocket there, baby. Well, you know, they, they, I feel sorry for cops. I mean, look at you, Bo. I just have this soft spot for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, well, here's your crusader. He was in no, a I'm crusader a crusader mode. now. I bet it would be a crusade. That was a crusader mo- mode. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, another big case around New York here. The famous Taconic Parkway oh, that was awful. deaths. This is a wrongful death one. Look, give the overview of what happened. There was just a, a woman and her husband had taken their kids and a couple of their nephews and nieces up camping upstate New York. The husband had driven back in one car. The wife was leaving later with all the kids in the van. And... For some explicable reason, 
She went on the wrong way, clearly knew she was going the wrong way on the Taconic Parkway coming home for a couple miles before she went head on into another car and everybody in the van was killed. How many All the dead? kids, it was six or seven. What? You know, sick. All of them except her were little kids. So, you know, so, their own kids and, and their so who nieces was and the, nephews. Who was the defendant on that? The the driver of the car, the owner of that car. The woman? Yeah. Her, the owner of the car was separate. Yeah. And then there were a couple on coming cars so too. The, the, so. the interesting thing about this case is that the family paid an investigative journalist to do a documentary to kind of cast some kind of uh, aspersions that the woman had some type of uh, mental disorder or brain disorder, and that's what caused the crash? They made a I thought they also take, took a run at that she had root canal or something, and she was chugging vodka to self-medicate, and that's why she blew like a, you know three times the limit when mm. they did the autopsy. But there was just too many kids involved, too bad. You yeah. know, just, uh, you so know. the bottom line with this, John, you know, we just have to subtract things. The bottom line in this is you would rather have a defendant that has real, real deep pockets, something that we could get a lot of cash out of, so we could sue someone like Macy's was good, right? Macy's had a lot of cash to sue. Well, they still do if it happens again, too, I think. But, right, uh, so in other words, you have a pretty uh, deep well there rather than someone, a person who only has a certain amount of um, I Actually, as a rule, don't go after a I shouldn't say it's a rule. I've done it once or twice when the people are very affluent and deserve it. But as a general rule, I don't like to go after a person's assets. Ah. I look to the insurance company. So you have good a coverage. bit of a soul in you, a little bit of a soul, John? A uh, little bit. Way back in the corner there, there's a little bit of empathy see, once in a while. So you see, back to your crusader mode. He's back into the crusader mode. You know, Carlo. No, I'm, I'm sensitive. It's an, an interesting pers- story, Carlo. So I had a case. I, I always I always bring John into cases. So I had a case, and there was a major bank executive that was involved in an illicit affair. And the illicit affair brought into play a beautiful, beautiful lady from a country of, called Australia, and I've never been there. So I brought uh, the attorney of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the people, John Kelly, in to help this man, but he had cash. So this was a good one. The guy had cash, and what, would, what it was, they were setting the executive up. Her and her husband was actually setting the uh, husband up who was married with some kids, and they were extorting him to get money out of him. So hence... We had to try to stop it, right, John? We did. And so then, all of a sudden, we wanted to get to Australia to stop this guy from extorting our client. So in the meantime, John reaches out to an attorney in San Francisco who is representing these people down there, these unsightly criminals down there. But he says, you know what? I got a group that will take care of this for you to John. John says, oh, that sounds good. So then John flies ahead of me. I'm leaving New York. And the next thing is... I fly to down under Australia. Australia you know, before I get there. And I tell knowing John... Knowing I could handle this by myself. Yeah, he says, I got this, Bo. Little does he know he's dealing with really bad guys. Lebanese guys with tattoos up their necks and 
tough badasses there. And the next thing that happens, John gets there, and I arrive into L.A. for the first leg. Then I'm going to get on Qantas and fly the second leg. I get him on the phone, and he goes, Bo, he goes, don't worry. You don't even have to come. I got this taken care of. They said, half a million dollars, you'll never see this guy again. <laughs> I no, said, hear from this guy. They didn't say see. Okay. I, I, half a million I dollars. I heard them. You'll never hear from this guy again. <laughs> I said, John, John, they're going to whack this guy. He says, get to your room to the hotel. Put a chair behind your door. Wait till I get there. So I fly in there. I bang on his door in the hotel. He's got chairs and bureaus behind the door. And next thing is... These guys were going to take care of this guy and make him not come around. I said, no, but but after you tipped me off, yeah. they were going to take care of me because I wasn't paying the half million dollars. Right. But the deal was that we weren't going to pay him. So I said, John, we're not giving him a half a million dollars. So I reach out. This is my money. I so then we reach out to these guys. I said, listen to me. I represent the client. This guy doesn't represent the client. You're not getting. A, there's the same word spelt in Australia. O-V-E-R. Mean this, this case is over. We don't need you. We don't want you. And they look cockeyed because they thought they were getting a half a million. They probably wanted to whack me and John. So I said, John, don't even turn around. Let's get the hell out of here. We get to the hotel, and I tell you John. You sit down with these guys. It was great. It was So real. we walk in, and the first guy goes, you look familiar. Uh, Fox News, you're the detective. This is Australia, Melbourne, Australia. Forget about that. I said, do they spell over O-V-E-R here in Australia? I said, because whatever he told you, it's over. There's no deal. Nothing's coming down. There's no half a million dollars. Do you understand? Now you have about eight guys there. These guys look like killers. So I told John, walk around. Don't turn around. We had the car waiting out front. We jumped in the car. We said, let's get the hell out of here. We shoot to the airport. Before these guys could comprehend what happened. You're already gone. We were gone. We, I said, don't turn around. Move. We get to the hotel. I said, get your shit. We're going to make the next plane out. Phone's ringing in the hotel. Hotel room. These guys are calling. I said, these guys are coming. I said, let's go, John. So now we're running to the airport. Yeah, John and I running to the airport. As I'm running, I'm pulling kangaroos and koala bears and shit for the kids, right? And I'm ripped in there. And next thing we get to the gate, and they go, you can't get on the plane. It's too late. There's, there's, the luggage can't make it up. I'm bending the uh, kangaroo, sticking it into my carry bag. You smashed my <laughs> laptop that was brand new. You tried to fold in half. So I knew we had foot. to get out of Australia. Otherwise, it could have. Could have been optimized there. These guys were bad guys. I checked them out prior. They were Lebanese criminals, organized crime guys. These guys were murderers. I thought and, they were nice guys. Yeah, okay, John. They would have had you for dinner. So now we finally, I showed a guy my old detective badge that we got to get to on this plane, life and death and all this crap. We were able to get on there. So the next thing is we get on the plane and I change into my, they have green pajamas in Qantas first class. I put my pajamas on. Your blinders. And my blinders. And your earplugs. And my ear, and my, my CPAC slippers. machine. My CPAC machine. And your slippers. And my slippers. With and tassels. we fly back to New York. Make a long story short, we solved the case. And the guy was eventually, John followed up. And we eventually went after him on a civil action against him and his wife. And we were able to recover on a civil action. We actually tried that case from New York, if you recall. Yeah, because you were afraid to go back to that, Australia. That is not true. And yeah. I bailed you out, I think. You bailed me, I bailed you out. One of us bailed the other out, I can't remember. Yeah. But we actually tried it by video from New York and in Australia. And John won that case civilly. 
because the criminal aspect wasn't there, but we wanted uh, John wanted civilly, and then uh, the guys had the robes and the wigs and yeah, everything yeah. on the camera, and we were we were safe. And that that, that was very room. interesting. So when people say to me, "Bo, did you ever go to Australia?" I think I was there six hours, <laughs> six hours, and all the way to Melbourne. Thirty six hours to get there. Yeah, it was Stand it back. was it was quite the fun, right, John? It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and I said, John, from now on, I do the the, the tough work. You do the courtroom. I'm Mr. Outside. You're Mr. Inside. Right, John? Yeah, I didn't argue with you either. It, yeah, but that, that it was, was it was fun. That was interesting. But the, the bottom line, you've touched so many interesting big cases. And do you have anything in the works right now, John? Uh, uh, any interesting cases that you're working on now? Uh, not like the old days. As a matter of fact, I probably have a couple that I, I wouldn't talk about without talking to the family, first of all. Actually, we mentioned one we have going right now that you yeah. got involved in and put the, the temper to the test with the, the forensic evidence. So yeah. That's exciting with the triple homicide and getting the family some relief. But uh, my podcast has been the whoa, thing whoa, I've been whoa, working whoa, whoa, on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You come on my podcast, promote your podcast? Absolutely. When yes, you, yeah, when like, you, uh, is, it, is your podcast started? No. Oh, so so. There's no podcast. It's a six-episode true crime cold case homicide took place right in Greenwich, Connecticut. A 13-year-old kid who's mutilated and murdered. When? What year? 1984. So what happened with it? It's never been solved. Nobody's been arrested. There was all kinds of physical and forensic evidence and suspects. And sounds like it's going to be a job for John's. Top detective, me. I think Mr. Deedle is weighing in on the evidence and commenting on what could and should be done with the case this day. Well, here I go. Now, okay. you you never worked on any other big case in Greenwich with Skakel, did you? No. That was a clown. That was a clown. Uh, what was his name? The one. Uh, Michael Skakel. Michael Skakel. Martha but, Moxley murder. But the lawyer was the guy who wouldn't let defend me Mickey for parking ticket. Mickey Sherman, he never put a defense on. Mickey was able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on that case. Yeah, yeah. Was, and let uh, me tell you, all he had to do was bring up a defense, a little defense. He brought nothing. He settled the case. And Mickey's wife was the one, Lisa Wheel, that got $32 million from my friend O'Reilly. Yeah. I don't think they're married anymore. I don't think they, I don't think she wants to be married to him. I'll be honest with you, Mickey Sherman, nice guy. I wouldn't let him defend me for a pocket ticket. You, well, I would use you for anything, John. Even a speeding ticket? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. But yes. there have been two murders in Greenwich in 50 years. One is the Moxley murder, which we know all about. Yeah. And it took 25 years to make an arrest, and that conviction was overturned. Yeah. The other murder is his kid, the 13-year-old boy, Matthew Margolis, that there has never even been an arrest made on it. So. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, these these cold cases, you know, they're, they're very hard for the fact that a lot of the evidence, you know, just through process elimination goes away. And now you're trying to place it back together. That's why when you have shows like the first 48, it's so true that first 48 hours is a very important time. But... On the other side, the scientific DNA and evidence now is so precise compared to when I used to be a detective, even with the uh, little girl there in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, what's her name? Ramsey. The Ramsey case. Jean-Benet. Uh, Jean-Benet Ramsey. And when they come out, when they got a DA 
who lets the mother, the father, and the brother off on touch DNA. You know what touch DNA is? Touch DNA is when I touch your shirt right now, he has my DNA on him. Your DNA could be on it from someone who folded it in Hong Kong, the pajama, and that touch DNA's on that pajama. You understand? So in reality, that was the the criteria for this DA, the prosecutor, taking charges away from the mother, the uh, the father, and the brother. My thing as a detective, no one is exonerated until I find out who did it. I mean, everyone's a suspect until you find out who did it. And I've never heard of a DA publicly exonerated, yeah. stating that they're not suspects any longer. People have been well, that case, that case is such an interesting case because when this little girl was murdered, all of a sudden the parents get on a plane the next day when their little girl was murdered and fly to Atlanta, to Georgia. Every part of it. Then they hire the former prosecutor who is the dear, who was, was the prosecutor there as their defense attorney who had all the insight to the law enforcement there. And I, I just can't believe what happened with this little girl killed. I have my own theory, but I don't want to get sued because I've made my theory uh, public long times ago. But in reality, this little girl was murdered, and I certainly feel the people from within that house know what happened. That's my feeling. That's probably. Yeah. So let's talk a little too. bit more about the murder in Greenwich because it sounds very interesting. So, you know, Greenwich, I have obviously a very affluent community. Uh, so back in the 80s, was this a, a very well-known case? Was it very publicized or was it really well, kind of it, under the radar? People think of Greenwich as being a very wealthy community, you know, but there's a part of Greenwich also that's a blue-collar aspect of, of Greenwich, a place called the Valley. Small River runs through it. There are two areas, Glenview and Glenville and Pemberwick, that, that comprise this area called the Valley. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a big deal when this kid was murdered like was Moxley. Moxley was from a wealthy family, and the suspect was from a wealthy family. And it, you know, books, movies, everything else. This poor kid, you know, covered for a week in the newspapers, you know, maybe a couple of feature articles a decade later, and that's kind of been it. So the, his mother's still alive. Uh, I just ran across it when I was looking through cases for another reason and asked the mom whether I could take a look at it. And I am being a crusader on this, this is a crusader, kid. no cash. This crusader, Carlo. Yeah, it just, you know, mm. I'm losing money on the deal, but let's, I don't yeah, like I, to, I so got let's a see little, what happens. I got a little problem on this, John. I got to okay, tell you, I've been okay, sitting well. here, I got a little problem. Uh, you brought another detective involved with this, uh, Mark Furman. Uh, honestly, you can't put him on a stand. His credibility is shot. Uh, from the OJ case, it's shot. My credibility now is explanatory. Understand? Well, How do you mix a New York City hard-nosed homicide, real homicide detective? You think I would have lost the OJ case? Two. That was lost because of when he was put on the stand. Pergitatious, they call that. I thought you said earlier today that Jury wouldn't have convicted O.J. if they had videotaped the murder. Unless it was Bo Deedle as the homicide detective. <laughs> I forgot about that part of it. Excuse me. I would have been there in that jury and looked at those juries in the eyes and said, this is not about O.J. First this of all, is about two people that were murdered by him. I'm looking at this promotional thing for my podcast, and there's someone who gets top billing in it. Who is that? Me. Yeah. I all should. Right. Furman is in there. Mark Furman is in there. 
One, he is a good friend of mine. I think he's a oh, good better friend of me. Absolutely not. Thank you. But when he was in Greenwich looking into the Moxley thing, he also ran across the Margolis case and mentions it in his book. So oh, that's boy. why I spoke to him about it. I don't think he would you look see, into the Margolis case you see, uh, that's 20 the years difference. ago. The difference is I can't write books about these cases that I work on because I'm still working on them. Because people would be afraid that there's going to be a book next on the investigation I did. That's why I don't talk about my cases. Confidentiality is the, is the way I go. I know a lawyer who's never written a book either about any of these cases. You. That's correct. Right. The exact and I'd rather reason. hire you than some star-screwed star lawyer talking about all his cases. We do it very stealthily. Is oh, that a word? I write a book about you, though, Bo. Oh, oh I can write boy, a book about I you, I drop John. a dime on you. <laughs> but uh, this is, you know, it's very interesting, you know, just... Again, to be real about it, and I happen to like Mark Furman very, very much. And I, I break his chops and they say, I was a real New York City homicide thing. You were in La La Land. Uh, you know, just my DNA is from the 70s and 80s of all the murders that we've had in New York and how we worked it. Today, I would not be an effective detective in the police department because I would probably crack a couple of guys' heads open if, if in fact, I was investigating something and something went wrong. I could not be a detective today on the NYPD, nor anywhere. I just now like to find out the facts and present the facts the way I develop them. And you can't lie about anything. You got If I was questioned on the stand, like Mark, if I ever used that word, I'd say, what, today? I mean, you don't lie when you're under oath. That's the point. That's the, that's the thing you have to learn, Carla, because whether you know it or not, someone has something. And even with the president, when he's talking, he has to realize when people are asking questions, they got something else. So tell the truth. And you don't have to remember what you said. How's that sound, Carla? Yeah, well, that's the golden rule of uh, attorneys. You should never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Right, right, right. Well, you know the president from going way back, don't you? Forty-something years. And uh, my president, his only problem is he can't admit when he lies or, or says not the truth. I mean, look, at everyone could say something, but you could always clear it up by saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, uh, I apologize. I don't think those words ever came out of my president's mouth, and he should come out. And I think he'd be more palatable to a lot of the other people that are against him. No? I don't think he's ever said it ever to anybody, <laughs> not just while he's president, but well, that's why, you know, whatever. That's why, you, know, I, 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 you know, the circle, these, yeah, these the, builders, these uh, you know, yeah, but the developers, whole thing is, you know, the whole thing is, I think we all have a little narcissism in us, but I think someone who can say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, is someone more palatable than someone, no, I never, no, no, no. And that's the negativeness that he's getting in the country, I think. And if he was to be a little bit more human, p people would be more appreciative of him. I agree. I mean, the last thing he should be is insecure if he's president of the United States. Yeah. He should be able to say that and not worry about it and be comfortable with it. Yeah. Any, other, any other cases, John, you're working on in the uh, personal injury side again? Uh, Anything interesting? I mean, they're interesting for the, the clients. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that have been hurt very badly in tractor-trailer accidents, you know, uh, construction site accidents, things like that, people that, that need help. But none of the old uh, 
Do you, you know, you know can sock them murder type things? Do you right know one of the ones I wanted to ask about was the uh, the murder that was in the Galleria Mall. That was you know very. Oh, I tried that recently. That was. That you was were an involved interesting with that. Case. Right in the park. You were involved industry. with that too. Yep. You did all the investigative yep. work, and you actually tracked down the key witness that I put on the last day of trial that was critical Terrible. to the outcome of it. But it was a woman well, that, who was that walking deep, to her car right in the middle of the day. That had she, deep pockets there with the insurances and all that. But, you know, there was another little to lighten it up a little bit. Uh, John Kelly met Could the, you use a Q, by the way? So. John Q. Kelly. Thank if you. you want to get to John Q. Kelly, John Q. Kelly. He met the infam, infamous Jordan Wolf of Wall Street, Belfort. He played golf with me, Mel Weiss, and the infamous Wolf of Wall Street. Tell him what happened. And this guy's such a lying, cheating piece of shit. Jordan Belfort, little punk, should have been in jail forever. So tell him what happened when we were playing golf, just to show his character. Uh, I think Jordan and I were partners and you were playing with mel mel weiss and we were playing a usual like ten dollars a hole from the front nine and then jordan decided we were going to play for a thousand bucks a hole on the back nine (laughs) and i said no way that i would do that and he called me a pussy he said i'll cover you john since you're being such a wimp and a you know girl and everything about it i said fine cover it so i think on about the 12th to the 13th hole Jordan yanked his drive into right into a bunker. No, it was a no, bunker. Well, that was one, too, but also in the woods. I mean, the balls were going all over the place. So, anyway, the one I recall that we clearly saw it go into the bunker, roll up the side, roll back down, settle in the sand, and we're playing with cards, and we drove over there, and all of a sudden Jordan's there ahead of us with his balls sitting up on the nice fluffy grass about 10 feet behind the bunker. And Bo says, you cheating piece of shit. Like you just said before, put the ball back in the bunker where it was. Jordan says, it was here in the grass. This is my <laughs> no, drive. Bo says, no. Jordan says, yes. Bo walks over to his golf bag, pulls out his gun, <laughs> walks over to him again, says, puts it back in the bunker. I'm out on a golf course thinking, I can't believe I'm going to see someone executed over cheating in golf. I was like, this, I, I couldn't even talk. And I thought I was going to shoot this guy. But the, the character head. was bad. The other part of the character, he yanks it into the woods. All of a sudden, I found it. And then, and then his ball is underneath some leaves, and Mel finds the real ball. That's right. And then all of a sudden, Mel goes, Oh, the guy found it. He was dropping balls everywhere he was going. And Mel, famous, God rest his soul, one of my dear friends, and John's great. dear yep. friend, great guy. And then all of a sudden he walks over to, I'll never forget him. He goes, you know something, kid? You're starting to fucking piss me off. He goes like this. You drop more balls on this golf course than they have in the pro shop. <laughs> and this was the character of this little cheating scumbag, uh, Jordan Belford. And that was one of the funniest things when Mel went at him and said, hey, you kid, you're a cheat. You're starting to piss me off. And Mel wasn't a violent guy, but he was getting to a point where this guy had no credible. And anybody can listen to him. He should be in jail. He robbed $200 million. He probably killed more old people, put their life savings into these pump and dump stocks. And then he did 15 months. He breaks about playing tennis. He should be in jail now. They only recovered $11 million. Two hundred million he robbed. Isn't he doing like speakers? Yes, yeah, speaking my ass. He has, a, he has a big podcast too. Oh, here we go. 
So, John, that just shows you can make it. He's full of shit. He's full of shit. He's got a podcast. So I guess your part, what's it going to be called? John Quill, Q Kelly? He's full of shit podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Dot com. Look it up. Anyway, it's Murder Greenwich on Edge. Okay, well, we're going to be looking for that. But in, in, uh, You're in, talking about it. If it tanks, it's because a No, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to help you with it. I'll, okay, be on, okay. I'll be on one of your first shows, and we'll talk about the evidence we developed on this horrific murder. You know, there's so many, you know, I think back of so many cases that, uh, you know, come up as far as not being solved. And uh, I, I hate when cases don't come to a conclusion. It's such a negative thing. Like, we're working on this case. Uh, it's not. It's a murder, I guarantee you, or an overdose. I shouldn't say it's a murder. It's either an overdose, which we have evidence to that the person was involved with, uh, and also could have been a murder or an overdose, but the girl's definitely dead, and it's a student at Indiana University, and uh, uh, it's the Lauren case. Sure. And we've been working on that. There's a Scarsdale family. Right? Yeah, and we've been working on that. My biggest thing is that I can't find closure. I can't find the remains so the family can have closure. It's haunting. Mike Cervola, uh, is lives and breathes this thing for the last nine years, as long as it's been. And it's horrible that we can't have closure. Honestly, a possibility that she wasn't murdered. It's very possible that she was overdosed because we found evidence to the fact she was using a lot of drugs and all that kind of stuff. And look, at, I've lost uh, a lot of kids uh, friends of mine's sons and daughters to this surge of drugs. So I'm not I'm not supporting it in any way. It's just we'd like to get closure. And it's horrible when you can't get closure for the family. She just vanished. Yeah, you know, it's something that you know we get calls on a weekly basis of tips and stuff. We investigate everything, and you always get your hopes up a little bit. But yeah, all you know thus far, it's turned out to be nothing. Well, you know, you know what it is when you have the resources. It's just funny when someone has resources, money. They can hire a John Kelly. They can hire a Bo Deedle. But I feel sorry about the people, really, the crusade thing that you were talking about. You can't do everybody, everything for nothing. And I find even with our own company, John, people taking on cases, my first thing is, do they got a retainer? Uh, 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 and, they, you know, just flashes back to when I first started the business when a kid was kidnapped into uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and then we had a rescue matter there, and the woman had no money. And uh, it ended up costing me 50000 I got the kid back, but you can only be a crusader so far because you got this, this thing called bills that come in. And you yeah, can't you feel be... badly. you got to feel badly, though, when these people call. And yeah, you have yeah. to tell them it's about money. And it is about it. They you, don't even think about that most when, of the time. And when you think. said that, uh, you know, him being a crusader, if he was a crusader, he couldn't own that uh, – $20 million house he has in Palm Beach. He couldn't own that other $40 million house in Bronxville. He couldn't own that house in Hampton for $40 million. How would he be able to afford his private jet if he, if he did things for free? Can we go back to talking about <laughs> Elmhurst in the early 80s? Yes. One of the first cases I had as a defense attorney, it was a Colombian air pilot, and he had been busted in an apartment in Elmhurst, and he had, I think it was 20 pounds of cocaine in the apartment, uh, half million dollars in cash there. Uh, the tasers, they were all using the tasers in and the bulletproof vests and everything. All that's in there, he's busted, hell without bail. I go in to meet with him the first time, and I'm starting to ask him about the evidence that was in the apartment. And I said, 
well, how do you explain the half million dollars in cash? He looks at me and he says, half million dollars? He said, there was three million dollars. <laughs> he said, the police showed up before the uniform guys and were putting it in garbage bags and throwing out the windows into the back wow. of the building. That and went on. I don't think that's true. I, I do think it's true. And it went <laughs> on, and I could honestly say at night when I was a cop and a detective in the 70s and 80s, when I went home to sleep, I didn't have to worry about the door being broken down with a warrant coming after me. Because one thing I was taught from real young from my father, you don't take something that's not yours no matter what, and you don't steal Stealing to me, you don't. Yeah, and you can sleep well when you're not stealing. When people are going to be coming with a warrant on your door, but uh, you know, John. So the listening audience, if they need the help of the great John Q. Kelly, where can they reach out to you? Uh, just Google my name; they'll find contact information. Well, give stuff me like your, that. Your, 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 I don't need to. When you're me, you don't need to. I don't carry a business so you're card. JohnQKelly.com or something like that. I'm just. The man, John Q. Kelly, theman.com. How's that? The man? The man. Okay. And uh, so every week we do something, John. We do Punk of the Week. Something that's pissing you off. Could be a person thing or whatever, an issue that's pissing you off this week. What is your Punk of the Week, John? I. You had to give me a heads up. Now I got to think a little bit. I don't think quite. Something's bothered you in the last week. People driving and texting at the same time. I know it's a big issue, but now you can't even on a two-lane highway and there's little traffic. You don't know if the car coming towards you is going to swerve into your lane or something like that. And it's happening And you want to know something? I know for a fact a lot of these head-on collisions, when they were investigated, they checked their cell phones, and they see the time element of when the accident occurred, and people are still texting, and uh, it's, 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 it's terrible. I terrible. saw a cop texting yesterday. He's driving, uh, not texting, on holding his cell phone up to his ear. Well, his I don't care about the holding the phone. I'm talking about texting. Holding the phone is not as dangerous as texting, John. Yeah, but you got to dial it or answer it no, and things hey, like that. Hey, Siri, quote. John Q. Kelly. Okay, my punk is you now. You're getting on my nerves. Okay. <laughs> What's your punk do we call? Well, talking about taking things that don't belong to the Houston Astros. They were stealing uh, all the signals that the catchers were giving to the pitchers. That was very unfair, and I don't think that should be allowed. I think it's a punk move. Sound like a real fucking wussy. Yeah, real wussy. That's bothering him. I have more. Do you sleep on. That is that something that keeps you up or no? It's just a punk. It's just a- well, you know, my punk and week is a lot more serious. Again, sure January first was being implemented in New York City with this uh, new law. Fifteen days, defense attorneys will get the name and address of the complainant and witness. Fifteen days, they'll get the grand jury testimony along with the evidence given to the defense attorneys. How many people are going to be victims of crimes and not going to be witnesses anymore? They'll be scared stiff. And also the fact that there's not going to be any bail. They say Rikers Island. You don't need Rikers Island. They're downgrading robberies to grand losties, giving grand losties DATs, desk appearance tickets. This is an outrage. All of a sudden, I just heard this morning, Malatakis, the girl that ran for mayor uh, with me, uh, she's talking about this now. We we wrote something, Colin and I put something together a month ago about this 
what's going to happen on January 1st. Now everyone, you notice, is jumping on the bandwagon because we explained the new criteria for this new criminal reform bill. And it's it's going to be New York City is going to turn into that movie, The Warriors, when the gangs take over. They'll be on the street. Just saw the other day up in the Bronx over the weekend, the dirt bikes surrounding the cop cars. And they're, they're tormenting them, and they do nothing to cops because they don't want to get involved because they're afraid of losing their jobs. And that's my punk of the week. That's the it. punk of the week is this governor, Governor Askis, a friend of mine. He couldn't shine his balls, uh, shine his father's ball bag. Mario Como was a great governor. This guy here, with him implementing this new criminal reform bill, is going to kill people. And I tell you what, John. That's the cases I want to take. Let's let's do a group. Let, let's make a model right now. When there are people that are going to be cr- killed by criminals and we're let out with no none bail at all, why don't we start going after these people and bringing them in as clients? Start suing the state and the city for wrongful letting these creeps out. I like that, John. Let's do a business because it's going to get big. What do you think, Carlo? Uh, if there's a legal basis for it, I think it's a good It's idea. a legal basis if someone was arrested 20 times and you're giving them no bail and he's a violent criminal. There's a legal basis there, right, John? Well, you're talking about perps being on the street, yes. being given the name and address and testimony of their accused right away. Yes. And the only way to really get rid of the charge is to get rid of the accuser, I would think. So right. Seems pretty obvious. But well, we'll have a case no there, right? Yeah. Hey, Carlo? It's going to start January 1st. We'll, we'll bring in the best lawyer. Now, first case will be, because it's going to happen, where there's a witness or a complainant that's murdered by the defendant or, the, or, or, or group of the defendant's friends, and then we have a case against the state for enabling it, and then the city and the district attorney. Right, John? Let's get ready to rumble. Oh, yeah. Hey, I just, I just realized this. This is going to be... A big deal, because as sure as we're sitting here, people are going to die on this new criminal reform bill. And you know what? This one I love. We'll sue. And we sue the state, and we sue the city, and the DA's office. You like it, John? I'm on board. Okay. There we go. With that? January 1st, let's get ready. So... John's podcast will be out soon. We'll post up links uh, on our social media so everyone can tune in learn about this uh, very interesting case and how it develops. You can find us. We're on social media. We're at One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo's at Bodil on Twitter and at the Real Bodil on Instagram. You can email us any questions, comments, guest suggestions, anything, any kind of feedback. We're at One Tough Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us at wabcradio.com always. And we'll see you next week. And one more thing. You want to get to my friend John Q. Kelly, the best lawyer in the world? You can get contact through Carlo or me through the office, and it will take the case. Good day, everybody. This 
is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 